But one of my college roommates was getting married out in Ohio, and so two of us who live here in Chicago decided we'd make a road trip out of it. And since this is the 21st century, we didn't really bother to get directions before we got into the car. We just trusted that soothing, pleasant voice of the woman inside the GPS to just guide us safely to our destination. You should be careful who you trust, okay? Uh, The first six hours of the trip were pretty uneventful, but once we got off of I-80, the GPS woman started giving more and more commands. Turn right, turn left, turn right. And we dutifully obeyed every order, and as we did, we found ourselves getting further and further away from civilization. Uh, Eventually, it was getting kind of late, the sun was going down, and the lady in the GPS made one more request, turn left. And as we did, we found ourselves going off of the road onto a dirt path into an open field. And when we got about a thousand feet in, we saw where she was taking us and it was not the Holiday Inn, okay? Uh, it was this, this old farmhouse that looked like uh, the set of every scary movie you've ever seen. Uh, it, it screamed, I was built on an ancient burial ground, you know? And right next to the house, there was this huge bonfire. It looked like they had taken all of the furniture from the house and they had piled it up and they were burning it all at once. And there was this figure, lone figure, standing next to the fire that as we drove up just sort of like turned and looked at us. Like he didn't didn't say anything, but his eyes were like, I've been waiting for you. And so it's needless to say, we did not get out of the car. We just sort of turned around in the field and we just screamed our way back to the road. Uh, And as we turned onto the highway, I swear, I heard that lady say, Recalculating. (laughs) You ever hit a dead end? You find yourself in a place where you didn't plan on going and you don't know how you got there and you're not really sure how to get back. What do you do when life takes that turn? We are currently in a series called Turn by Turn and we have been talking about the ways God guides us when we make decisions in life. And we've been talking about uh, the the main ways that he guides us. The last three weeks, we've talked about uh, the Bible. We've talked about uh, the community around us that gives us wisdom. We've talked about the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to finish up the series. But the entire time, we have been uh, talking about this as if we had options. We're assuming we're, we're in situations where we've got more than one choice. You know, should I take this job or not? Uh, What should I spend my money on? Uh, Which person should I date? Because if you're like me in high school, you had so many options, you know? Uh, But what about the situations where you don't really seem to have options? Where you're stuck with a a health situation or a a family problem or a, a financial need that you wish you didn't have, but there's not much you can do about it. Uh, maybe you've even found yourself in a situation where you've sought God's guidance and, and you followed the, the wisdom you got and, you, and you're finding yourself in an even bigger mess than before and you're thinking, okay, what the heck? I thought if I followed God, things would turn out much better than this. What do you do when you hit a dead end? Let's turn to the New Testament letter of James in your Bible, if you've got one. Uh, It's towards the back. We're going to be in James chapter 1. If you find Revelation, go to the left. If you find Hebrews, go to the right. It's one of the small books in the middle. Uh, One of the things I find amazing about the book of James is that it was actually written by Jesus' half-brother. Did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Uh, What's so interesting about his siblings was that during their lives, they didn't believe what Jesus said about himself. It's really hard to think someone's divine when you've shared a bathroom with them your whole life, you know? And so you got to wonder, what actually changed James' mind that he would uh, write this book? Probably it was when he saw his brother killed on a cross, and a week later he saw him alive. Changes everything. Well, after Jesus returned to heaven, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is a, a dangerous place to be a follower of Christ. you got to remember that it was the religious leaders and the political leaders in the city that, that executed Jesus. 
And so being Jesus' brother and being a, a leader in the Christian movement, this was not a, a safe thing. And James is writing his book to a bunch of the Christians who were in the city but fled because of the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem. And they are now scattered around the Roman Empire. And they are displaced. They are outsiders. And if you read between the line in the book, you realize that they're being mistreated by powerful, wealthy people. And so James is offering advice. He's offering wisdom of how to walk in the way of Jesus, even when it's difficult. And so the very first thing he addresses in the book is what happens when you hit a dead end. And what we'll discover is that uh, even when it looks like there are no options, there are still choices to be made. Start reading in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Isn't it great that God speaks to us? Let's thank him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The first thing I want you to pick up from this passage is this. Dead ends are a chance to choose growth. Dead ends are a chance to choose growth. Uh, James starts off by talking about when we face trials of many kinds. And when he uses that word trials, he's just talking about anything bad that can happen in a person's life. Uh, when I'm preparing to preach, what I do is I, I study the passage and I use uh, basically an in-depth version of the COMA method. Uh, COMA is an acronym we use a lot around here. It stands for con Context, Observation, Message, and Application. Uh, and this is the method that we use with our Bible-savvy reading schedule, which I know many of you are following. It's our, our church-wide plan to go through the Bible in four years. And for those of you who are doing that, and even those who just want to jump in, uh, you should know that the, the new journals that are starting off in January are available. So uh, as we get ready for that, go ahead and pick those up in the next couple of weeks. You're going to need them. Uh, and we've heard such good things from people who have been using these journals, things like, you know, this is the first time in my life uh, when I've been more in the Bible than, than not. Or uh, this is a, a great time where I, I get to talk with my family and my kids about the Bible. Uh, we've never been able to do that before. The Epic journals are really helping us with that. But we've also heard from people who are saying, this can get really tough sometimes. Like when you get to some of those weird passages in the Old Testament, because like, let's be honest, there are some weird passages. Uh, for instance, uh, this week we read Genesis 36, which if you read it, you know, is a list of names. Like what do you do with a list of names in the Bible? There are, there are a bunch of these. Well, how about this? Uh, I talked to a dad who told me the story of how uh, he and his wife and his five-year-old daughter uh, sit down at dinner and they do their reading at dinner. And as uh, mom or dad reads the passage out loud, uh, this five-year-old has her epic journal and she can't write a lot of words. So what she does is she actually draws pictures of things she's thinking about as they read the passage. Uh, and as they were reading this list of names, she kept on drawing people and people and more people. Uh, and when they were done, uh, her dad said, hey, uh, Lizzie, why'd you draw that? And she said, there are so many people and God loves every one of them. How about that? Isn't that good? That's amazing. Uh, it's actually my number one rule when you see a list of names in the Bible. If you cannot figure out why it's there, uh, you can at least say this. God knew and loves every single one of those people, and he knows and he loves me too. That's pretty good. So uh, back to James, okay? So when I'm prepping for a sermon, 
I take out the passage and I go through the coma method. But what I do is I go through the first three steps. I look at the context, I make observations, and then I, I see what messages are in the passage, and I do that in one sitting. But then I don't move on to the A, to the application part. Uh, because when I'm studying for a sermon, I'm not just applying it to my life. Uh, I, I'm thinking of how to apply it to lots of people's lives. And so what I do is after I've studied it, I, I listen for the next few days uh, of situations where this might apply to other people's lives. Uh, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, this time I was thinking about trials of many kinds. Uh, and, and sometimes you got to kind of go fishing for stories about uh, a passage. But this time it felt like the fish were just sort of flopping up onto the shore and flapping around. You know, there's just so many examples. It was kind of overwhelming. I heard about a man in our church who's having a high-risk surgery on his spine this week. Or a, a, a Hispanic girl that goes to a high school around here who was hanging out in the hallway with her friends. And somebody walked by and said, hey, when are you guys getting deported? Or there was a, a couple who told me about their daughter has a serious mental health problem, and I had to put her in the hospital this week. There's a guy who grew up with an abusive dad, and now he, he doesn't feel safe having his own kids around their grandfather, and it's really, really hard at the holidays. There's a guy who's attracted to other men. He didn't ask for it. He doesn't want it. But as long as he can remember, remember his sexual orientation has pointed towards men instead of women. But he knows as a follower of Jesus that if he's going to follow Scripture's teaching on sex and marriage, that means he's going to end up saying no to a whole lot of things that he wants. And unless there's a, a miracle that changes his orientation, he's going to forego sex and marriage and children. And there are other examples of infertility and grief and job loss and loneliness and divorce, so many things. And I just ran into that the last couple of weeks. Trials of many kinds. Why is it so easy to find examples of suffering and pain? It's because every person suffers. Every person. The, the passage does not say if you face trials. It says whenever you face trials. And the assumption is that at some point, probably lots of times in your life, you are going to hit dead ends. You're going to be in situations you don't want to be in and you don't know how to get out of. It's inevitable. And I know we all know this, don't we? Like, we all know that we're going to have pain in life, but sometimes we don't let it sink in. Not like, we know it, but we don't prepare ourselves for suffering. And when the suffering comes, it, 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 it's surprising, and, and it kind of overwhelms us. It crushes us. But here's the thing. It doesn't have to. Suffering and loss and pain does not have to defeat us. Uh, one of the books that we're recommending with this series is a book called The Will of God as a Way of Life. It's by Jerry Sitzer. It's a fantastic book about being guided by God throughout your life, and I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, but my favorite book by Jerry Sitzer is another one. It's called A Grace Disguised. Uh, it's the best book I've ever read about loss and pain. Sitzer is a college professor out on the West Coast, and uh, one day about 20 years ago, he was uh, headed home with his family from a trip to Idaho, and his minivan was hit by an oncoming driver at 80 miles an hour. And in an instant, his wife, his mother, and his four-year-old daughter were killed. His other two children survived the accident, and as you can imagine, it was absolutely devastating. Uh, a Grace Disguised is Sitzer's reflections after the fact of what happened in his heart and his soul in the years following this tragedy. It, it's a tough book, but that's what makes it so good. It's really, really honest. And I, I want to read to you one of Sitzer's insights from that book. He says this, The experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. 
It is not what happens to us that matters as much as what happens in us. We do not always have the freedom to choose the roles we must play in life, but we can determine how we are going to play the roles we have been given. So insightful. It is not what happens to us that matters as much as what happens in us. When we hit a dead end, even if it's not as extreme as losing three family members, in those moments when we're, we feel like we're stuck and there are no options, there are still choices to be made. And this is why James says something astounding here at the beginning. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy. Let's do a show of hands. How many of you, this passage drives you crazy? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds? Like, look, anybody who has experienced loss knows how painful it can be for some well-meaning person to try to encourage you. You know, like you just brace yourself when someone starts a sentence with, well, uh, cheer up or, or look on the bright side or, you know, it's not as bad when you think about it this way. It's like, oh my goodness. And it's even worse if it comes kind of wrapped up in some sort of spiritual rationale of why you shouldn't be upset because now you're not only sad, but you also feel guilty for how you're responding. Maybe even some of you felt that way today. I mean, our theme for the week of Advent is joy. And so we sang this song about joy, unspeakable joy, rises in my soul, never lets me go. And you just rolled your eyes at that one. You read this and you think, James, man, show some sensitivity. People are hurting here. Why are you talking about pure joy? But here's the thing you got to keep in mind. James knows suffering. He's part of a persecuted minority. His friends have been killed for their faith. His, his community has been chased out of town. This is not some abstract theory he's coming up with. This is something he has learned firsthand with real experience. The other thing to realize is that this phrase is hard to translate in a way that gives the, the nuance of what's being said. I actually read a commentator who said this. The, the Greek word that's translated pure here probably suggests intensity, complete or unalloyed joy, rather than exclusivity, as in nothing but joy. James does not suggest that Christians facing trials will have no response other than joy, as if we were commanded never to be saddened by difficulties. His point, rather, is that the trials should be an occasion for genuine rejoicing. So think of it this way. Uh, one time I had a can of soda that said, made with pure cane sugar on it. Now, of course, that label does not mean made with only cane sugar, although some sodas taste like they're just sugar water, you know? But what it was saying was, this is real. It's not artificial. It's not fake. It's real sugar. And so James is not saying that we should only be happy and never sad. He's saying that even when we are sad, we can experience real, not artificial joy. We don't have to slap on a cheery face and pretend like everything's okay, because it's not okay. And it's okay not to be okay. But in the midst of that not okayness, we can actually be joyful and not be faking it. This is how the Bible talks about joy all the time. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he describes his own experience. He says, I am sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Same time. Uh, the book of Psalms, which is a, a collection of worship songs, it, it comes with these incredibly happy, joyous praise songs, and they are right next to the most gut-wrenching laments you've ever seen. It, it was Jesus' own experience. Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And this means that he had joy even when he's hanging on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Bible, joy is a complex thing. Real joy can exist right alongside real sorrow. 
It's also helpful to remember that James is not trying to add an extra burden to you. He's actually trying to relieve one. He's not saying, okay, look, I know you got bad news today, but if you can't figure out a way to be happy about that, then you're being disobedient to God and you should feel guilty. He's not saying you shall not despair. He's saying you need not despair. You don't have to be trapped by your pain. There is another way. The, the suffering does not have to crush you. It does not have to get the final word. There is actually hope. And so the big question is this, where does the hope come from? Why can you rejoice? And the reason is found in verse three, when James uses the word testing, testing. Once again, we've got a, a tricky translation problem here because uh, the word test in English makes us think of schools and it makes us think of a, a, what a teacher uses to determine if we've met the requirements. You know, you can either pass or you can fail. Uh, but that's not the way the word is being used here. Uh, testing is an image from the world of metallurgy, which I know all of you are very familiar with. So for the handful of you who have never smelted ore, I'm going to explain it, okay? Uh, look at this picture. You know what this is? This is gold, it's gold. That's what it looks like when it actually comes out of the ground. Maybe you didn't expect that. It doesn't look like the sort of thing that you'd wear around your neck or you'd put on your finger. So how does this get turned into something like this? By using something like this. In the ancient world, there, there are different ways in the modern world, but in the ancient world, if you wanted to get metal out of ore, you had to heat the rock up so hot that the metal melted. And that means you had to raise the temperature to thousands of degrees or higher. The liquid metal would run out of the rock and all of the other minerals and the impurities would float to the top so that you could separate them out. This is what is meant by testing. We're not being tested like a student in order to prove that we are good. We are being tested like a metal in order to make us good. Uh, James is saying that God uses the suffering in our life to purify us and refine us and strengthen us. The, the intensity of suffering, it raises impurities in our character to the top so that we can deal with them. Because it's easy when things are going well to say, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that selfish. I'm all right. But then the stress hits and you're suddenly, you're impatient and you're rude and you're yelling at people that you love or you're, you're wallowing in self-pity or you're blaming people or you get controlling. Or, I mean, there's millions of ways to respond poorly to pain. And we're tempted in those situations to say, well, no, that's not really me. That's just sort of the stress talking. Like normally I'm a much better person than that. But think about it this way. Let's say you're talking to a quarterback and he says, you know, I, I'm a really good passer. I'm really good, except when I'm under pressure. Like when you're in the game and all those guys are right there, they're really scary, you know? And the, the fans are watching and the, the, the game's on the line. Like that's a high pressure moment. You'd throw it off too. I mean, you know, but I'm really a good passer most of the time. Here's the thing. How you act when things are easy does not tell you what kind of person you are. It's when things are challenging, when things are on the line, that's when the real you is on display. And if you're like me, that's a pretty sobering thought. I'm not really proud of the ways that I react sometimes to pressure. But you see, suffering, it isn't what makes you self-centered. The impatience, the anger, all the rest of that stuff, it was already there. The stress doesn't create it, it just makes it visible. And that is actually a really good thing. It's a hopeful thing. Because when you can see that stuff coming out, you can actually do something about it. You can make a choice. You don't have to stay that way. You can choose to grow. The other way that trials refine us is by stripping away good things in our lives so that we have to hold on to the best. Here, here's what I mean. When we experience loss, it means we have lost something that is good. Our, our health, a loved one, a relationship, a job. 
They are good, good things. And it is not a sin to enjoy them or to want them or to value them. Uh, but when we, we lose these things, it's natural to feel sorrow over them, to, to miss them. Uh, it's not a weak faith that you, you, you long for those things that you lost. But here's the thing. Even though they were good things, they were never ultimate things. That as good as those things were, they were never the best. They were never the true source of your significance or your security or your satisfaction. And when they're taken away, it forces us to ask the question, what is actually ultimate? What is actually the best? Again, here's what Jerry Sitzer says about it. He says, deep sorrow often has the effect of stripping life of pretense, vanity, and waste. It is wonderfully clarifying. Loss invites us to ask the basic questions about ourselves. What do I believe? Is there life after death? Is there a God? What kind of person am I? Do I really care about other people? How have I used my resources, my time, money, and talent? Where am I headed with my life? And this is where perseverance comes in. In verse 3, James says, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Uh, perseverance is when you choose to hold on to what's most important, even when it gets hard. It's choosing the best over the good. Because the temptation when you're hurting is to actually let go of the best. To say, I'm angry at God, so I'm going to stop seeking him. I'm annoyed at church, so I'm going to stop showing up. I'm, I'm weary of the community, so I'm going to withdraw from people who love me. I'm tired of holiness, so I'm going to use pain as an excuse to indulge. But we actually have a choice. We actually have a choice. James says, let perseverance finish its work. Keep holding on to what's best. Persevere, stick with God and with his people, and let that have its effect on you. Because here's what happens. Look at verse four. James says that if you do this, if you hold on, you will become, not all at once, but over the long haul, you will become mature and complete, not lacking anything. This, this is what makes James say, you can have real joy in the midst of trials. Because here's a secret about hitting a dead end. A lot of dead ends are actually direct routes to where God wants to take you. Like, like sometimes when we're seeking guidance from God, what we have in mind, we say, here's the destination I want to get to. I want to be happy. I want to be healthy. I want to be successful in life. God, could you show me every turn along the way to get there? And God says this. He says, you know, I actually do want to guide you in life, but I, I have a different destination in mind. It, it's over here. And it, it is so much better than your vision of health and success and happiness over here. It's actually your perfection. You see, God is not interested in giving us a certain kind of life. He wants to make us a certain kind of person. And he is using the events in our lives to make us complete and whole, lacking nothing. And that is incredible good news. Because I got to tell you, my, my biggest problem is not what's going on out here. My biggest problem is usually what's going on right here. It's my heart, my reaction, my attitude. I'm trapped less by my circumstances and more by me. And God is saying, I can actually fix that. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to free you from yourself I'm going to take that old, broken, sinful you, and I'm going to make you something glorious and good and amazing. You are going to be my masterpiece. You're going to be someone who looks like me. And this is the reason why we can rejoice. Because God will not let our pain destroy us, but he will let it perfect us. And so you have a choice. Will you trust him enough to follow through on this process? When you hit a dead end, will you choose growth? Before I move on, I just want to highlight something going on here at the church. 
uh, we know that when you're walking through a season like this, when it's, it's painful and hard, uh, especially around the holidays, uh, it can be really, really tough, especially to do it on your own. And so we've got an event coming up on December 20th. It's called Weathering the Season. It's a place to gather and just uh, get some skills, get some uh, support to cope with whatever's going on in your life that's difficult. Uh, this is actually part of our Care Night ministry, which is an minist- ongoing ministry that we have that supports people that are going through addictions or grief or divorce or uh, all sorts of different kinds of loss in life. Because we don't want you to have to go through that alone. Uh, we want you to do it in community and with God. So go ahead and check that out. Second thing I want to highlight from this passage is this. Dead ends are a chance to choose wisdom. Dead ends are a chance to choose wisdom. Uh, Because sometimes when you hit a dead end, uh, it's not just that there are no options. Actually, what you're facing is a lot of bad options. You you feel like, you know, I I, I could do some things, but it doesn't seem clear what would actually be a good idea. And I kind of don't want to choose any of them. And when you get to those moments, you kind of back up and you say, God, um, I need some bigger uh, perspective on this because I cannot see which way is a good idea. And so that's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. It's pretty straightforward. If you you lack wisdom, ask God for it, and he'll give it. And the question really is this. Do you do that? Do you do that? When you're you're making a decision, do you actually spend real time in prayer asking God for wisdom, saying, God, give me your perspective? And for bigger decisions, uh, have you ever actually fasted? Uh, fasting is just uh, skipping a meal or maybe a day's worth of meals in order to spend uh, more time in earnest prayer to God saying, God, I need your guidance. I need your help. This is too big for me. And when you do that, when you ask God for wisdom, how does he guide us? Well, this is what we've been talking about for the past three weeks. We've talked about the big ones, uh, about guidance from the Bible, from other wise people, and from the Holy Spirit moving in us. Uh, And these are the big ones. So if if you want to know more about that, you can actually go check out those messages. But there is one way God guides us that we haven't talked too much about. And that is through circumstantial signs. Uh, Sometimes God guides us through the situations that we're in. Uh, What he does is, uh, people often talk about this as opening or closing doors in life. The idea is that God is in control of the circumstances and even the details in our lives. And so if he wants to, he can orchestrate a a clear path to a certain direction. Or he can give you signs that this is the way you should go. It's not very common, but there are stories in the Bible where people actually ask for for signs like this. Uh, A couple of weeks ago in our Bible reading plan, we uh, read a story about uh, Abraham sending his servant to go find a, a wife for his son Isaac. And this servant goes out, and he's got to find this woman, and he doesn't know where she is. Uh, And so he actually says, God, will you give me some signs to show me I'm on the right track? And God actually answers that request, and he gives uh, the signs, and he finds the woman. And I know we've uh, heard the same thing from many of you. Uh, Lots of you have stories where you say, I was was praying and seeking wisdom. Uh, I was going to the Bible. I was talking to trusted people. But the thing that tipped the scales that made us confident was that there was a sign or circumstance that just said, God is in this. That happens. Uh, This actually happened with our church recently. Uh, When we were going through the process of adopting Lamplighter Bible Church, uh, there were all sorts of circumstances and signs and little things uh, that made us say, God is actually in this process here. Little connections and coincidences that suddenly seemed less like coincidences and more like signs. Here's the thing, though. I want to give you a couple of cautions about this approach. Uh, The first thing is this. Although we have examples in the Bible of God giving signs to people, God never promises that he will always give a sign. 
Uh, so that means you can ask for them. You can look for them. Uh, but God it doesn't say, I guarantee I will give you one. He guarantees he will speak to you in scripture. Uh, he guarantees that you can go to the church and ask for help, but he doesn't say, I'll always give you a sign. Second thing is this. Uh, sometimes when we're asking for a sign, it's actually a way for us to try and weasel out of doing something we already know we should do. Okay, the classic example of this is a guy in the Old Testament named Gideon. Uh, Gideon was asked to do something really big by God, and God actually sent an angel to Gideon, and the angel said, here's what you're supposed to do. There was no ambiguity about it. But Gideon was kind of a coward, and so what he did was he said, okay, uh, God, if you really want me to do this, give me a sign. Here's the sign I want. And God actually gives him the sign. But then he sees the sign, and he says, well, that kind of was an easy one. So uh, God, give me an even harder sign. And God actually gives him the harder sign. But you can imagine God thinking as he's giving the sign, he's like, dude, I sent you an angel. Like, just go to it, okay? It's like really, really clear. Most people would be begging me to send something like this. Uh, there are times when we are like Gideon. We know we're supposed to do something. And usually it's because the Bible has just told us we're supposed to do it. Like, don't date someone who doesn't share your faith in Jesus. Uh, give generously to your local church. Ask for forgiveness from somebody that you've wronged. Like, it's unambiguous. We know we're supposed to do that, but we say, God, if you really want me to do this, give me a sign. That, that's, that's not how it works. We're just supposed to obey. The other thing about signs is that sometimes when you're asking or looking for a sign, you start to see signs everywhere where they aren't really, you know? Uh, some things are actually just coincidences, and you shouldn't read anything into them. And because uh, signs are ambiguous, it means you should never rely just on a sign. You should always get it confirmed by Scripture, by the wisdom of other people, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Here, here's the way I use signs in my life most. I, I often pray the slam the door in my face prayer. Have you ever prayed this? Okay, what, what I do is I say, all right, I'm going to gather all the wisdom I can, and God, I'm, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to go this direction. Uh, I, I'm, I'm using what you gave me, and I think this is a good idea. But then I say, God, if you don't want me to go there, just slam the door in my face, okay? And the idea here is that I, I can make a good decision, but I don't have the whole picture. And sometimes God knows better, and I'm going to let he, him be in control of my life. But I'm also not going to let it paralyze me. I'm not going to say, well, I don't have a sign, so I'm not going to move. I say, God, I'm going to move until you stop me. And again, you don't do this with things you know are wrong. Like, God, I'm going to go rob this bank. Stop me if you don't want me to, you know. <laughs> like, like, you do what you're supposed to. But even if God doesn't give you a sign, uh, this verse is really clear. If you pray for wisdom, you can fully expect God to answer that prayer. But James does put a condition on it. Look at verse 6. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Uh, James is saying that the posture you take when you ask for wisdom uh, it makes a difference in how well you're going to be able to receive wisdom from God. He says you should believe and not doubt. Now, this might come across as a little bit confusing, uh, as if you aren't allowed to have any uncertainty or questions when you ask for wisdom. Uh, and it's tricky because when you're in a situation where you want to ask for wisdom, that's usually when you feel a sense of, of uncertainty and questions. It's, it's unclear what you're supposed to do, and so it sort of comes with the territory. But here's what you need to realize. There are, there are two kinds of doubt, and the Bible rules one out, but not the other. Think of it this way. Have you ever interacted with a child who asked the question, why, why? Why? Okay, sometimes this can be really, really fun. Uh, I love it when my daughters ask me things like, why do my fingers get all wrinkly in the bathtub? Like, why is my belly button so weird looking? Why do narwhals have horns? Why don't I have horns, you know? 
And, and it's great, not just because they ask cute questions, but because it's a, a sign of trust. Even when they ask the, the harder questions, like, why do I have to get a, a shot at the doctor? That kind of scares me. Or, or why did great-grandma have to die? They're coming with those questions because they're kind of saying, Dad, I, I know you know things I don't know, and I trust you to tell me the truth. That, that, that kind of questioning is good. It's a sign of trust. But there's another kind. When, when they say, why, why, why? And all they're trying to do is get out of something I told them to do. Uh, why do I have to go to bed? Why can't I watch another show? Uh, why can't I jump off the bunk bed and have my sister catch me? You know, why, why? It's not about trust. It's about looking for a loophole. And this is the kind of doubt that James is talking about. Uh, that kind of doubter is not interested in being all in with God. Uh, they're, they're putting their, their, their commitments with conditions. They're saying, if you tell me something I want to hear, then I'll listen to what you have to say, God. Uh, James is saying uh, a person like that should not expect to be able to receive anything from God. And it's not that God doesn't want to give them wisdom. It's that they're taking a posture that can't receive it. It's the difference between someone coming into the room and saying, okay, let me hear what you have to say. And someone saying, okay, let me hear what you have to say. This person is not going to be able to receive whatever feedback they're going to get, no matter what you say. And so James is trying to get us to come to God with a posture of openness, not of certainty, but of trust in God's character. And this is because James says God is generous and he gives to all without finding fault. How do you get to that point where you trust God like that? Especially when you've hit a dead end. Like, how, how do you believe that the pain that you're going through isn't just a punishment from God? That, that God isn't just indifferent and abandoned you? How do you actually believe that the God who let this situation come into your life is also going to generously give you wisdom about it? I think the only way we can really get to that point is by looking at Jesus. Because in a lot of ways, Jesus' whole life was a drive down a dead-end road. Uh, from the moment he was laid in the manger in Bethlehem, his life was headed straight toward the cross. And on the night before he died, he, he was praying to God saying, Father, is there another way? Do I have any other options? But there wasn't another way. If Jesus wanted to save the world, he had to do something he wished he didn't have to do. But he chose to do it. He, he trusted the Father and he chose to go through the rejection and the shame and the physical torture and the spiritual agony of the cross. And this is how we know that God gives generously because he gave us himself. This is how we know that our suffering will perfect us and not destroy us. Because Jesus is now the one who is sitting on the throne of the universe. He is the one who gets to say yes or no to every event that comes into our lives. And Jesus knows, he knows what it means to face trials of many kinds. He's not aloof to suffering. He has been there. He has felt our pain and more. And anyone who would go through that kind of suffering for you is not going to choose to put you into a situation that he knows is going to destroy you. Jesus chose to love you through his suffering. Now the question is, will you choose to trust him in yours? As we close our service today, we're going to do two things. We're going to sing a final song. It's one we introduced a couple of weeks ago called, I Will Follow. And I think the theme of that song goes really well with the theme of this passage. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to take our tithes and our offerings, and I just want to remind you that we are still working on our year-end goal of closing the gap in our general giving fund and in our next campaign, and I know we keep mentioning this. We don't want to sound like the year-end pledge drive on public radio or something like that, uh, but some of this is simply practical. We've only got a couple of weeks left in the year, and we're getting closer to our goal, but we're not there yet. 
Uh, But it's more than practical. It's also about partnership. As a church, we are a family on mission, and what we do is we pool our resources so that we can do more together, uh, so that we can have uh, Kids World and student ministries and Christmas concerts and reaching out to the community and all the things we do around the world. That's what this is all about. And so let's pray, let's sing, and let's give. Jesus, we look to you as the one who came and chose to suffer and to bear our burdens, to pay our debt. And because you are on the throne, we know that we can trust you in whatever trial, whatever pain we are facing right now. God, we ask for your wisdom, that we need it. We are so small compared to you. We don't have the whole picture. We need your guidance, and we ask that you would give that to us. And God, we commit to you. We say we will follow you wherever you lead because we know that you love us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.